What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. important questions that anyone could answer and even ask is, who is Jesus? And if you were to go out and you were to interview a hundred different people and ask them this question, who is Jesus? You get all sorts of different answers from different people. Uh, Many non-religious people, uh, they just kind of view Jesus as a historical figure, and they might say, you know, Jesus was a a good man who lived 2,000 years ago, or or Jesus was a a good teacher, and his teachings have inspired millions of people. And uh, if you came across some religious people, you know, they would have more than just a thought that Jesus was a historical figure, but based on the religious belief system that they have, um, they would have different answers to the question, who is Jesus? If you came to someone who believed in Islam, they would say that Jesus was a great prophet uh, like Muhammad. If you, you know, came to someone who believed in Mormonism, they would say that Jesus is the offspring of God, and so is Lucifer, who is Jesus' spirit brother. Uh, if you came to those who you know, were Jehovah Witnesses, they would say that Jesus was a created being. If you came to those who believed in Judaism, they would say that Jesus was a false messiah. Well, the Bible teaches something very different than this. It teaches us who Jesus is. It gives us the truth of who Jesus is. And, you know, the Bible shares a lot about Jesus. He's the focal point of it. It shares a lot of different things. But in the verses that we're going to cover this morning, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul is going to share with us three important things about who Jesus is. First, that Jesus is God. Second, that he is not only God, but he is the creator and the sustainer of everything. And third, he is the head of the church. Now, Paul could have chosen many different things to kind of focus on when it it comes to Jesus. And he's picked these three things for a reason. Because as we remember, when we started the introduction of the book of Colossians, one of the reasons for this letter were because people had brought in heresies, these false teachings into the church there. And most of those heresies directly attacked Jesus. Uh, And so the three issues that really came up the most are these three issues that Paul kind of focuses on because one of the biggest attacks was on Jesus's deity, that he is God. And so Paul wants to make very clear that we understand that Jesus is God. But another attack went against Jesus being the creator, being the sustainer of creation. And then there was attacks within the church itself from believers who were trying to take the headship of Jesus, the authority of Jesus away, and take that upon themselves because they wanted to be the head and the authority. And so Paul deals with all three of these aspects of Jesus in order to really combat some of these false teachings and heresies that were coming into the church. And the great thing about these things that Paul focuses on, if you look at the world today, not much has changed when it comes to the attacks against Jesus. The number one attack in Colossae back then was the attack on Jesus' deity, and it's the same thing today. That is the biggest attack against Jesus. They want to attack the reality that Jesus is God. And so with all the different things that I just shared of examples of what people would say, notice that none of them say that Jesus is God. They all have different thoughts about he's a prophet, you know, he's a good teacher, a good man, whatever, but they're all in agreement in one area. They're in agreement that Jesus is not God. They attack his deity. We see it all the time today. And another big attack today concerning Jesus is the fact that he is the creator, that he is the sustainer of all. 
You know, today people think, well, no, Jesus isn't the creator. You know, evolution is what we, you know, have that ultimately created, or at least, you know, that we are the random accidents over a long period of time. And, you know, we kind of sustain ourselves. And so they removed Jesus from that role and that position. And sadly, just like back in Paul's day, in the church today, there are those who would like to remove Jesus from the headship and authority that he deserves in the church and try to take that upon himself. And so these three things that we're going to look at this morning that Paul deals with concerning who is Jesus are just as important today as they were for the church in Colossae 2,000 years ago because we have the same attacks coming against Jesus, and we need to understand the truth of who Jesus is, but also practically, well, what does that do for us? You know, what do we need to take from these wonderful things of who Jesus is? And so we're going to be focusing on that this morning. So let's start by reading the verses that we'll look at this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that they're on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence." So the first thing that Paul says in this list of things focusing on Jesus is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now notice here that Paul refers to God as the invisible God. And one of the things that many people today struggle with, and they would have struggled with it back then in Paul's day as well, is the reality that they can't see God with their eyes. You know, we desire that. We want that. Oh, I wish I could just sit in a room and see God face to face. That would be so wonderful, especially when I'm lonely, especially when I'm going through difficulty. You know, I want to be able to see him, but I can't. And that's something that I struggle with. Well, you know, in the book of Exodus chapter 33, we're given good reason why we can't see God. It's not that God's trying to play hide and seek with us. He's got a good reason for why he doesn't want to reveal himself. Speaking to Moses, God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. You see, the glory of God is so great that if he were to show up in front of you in all of his glory, you would die. You know, it would be something that you could not experience and survive. And so God says, yes, I know you would love to see me in all my glory face to face, but you wouldn't be able to survive it. The only time you're going to do it, see that is when you're in your new glorified body. You go to heaven. You can see God face to face. But now, and in the Old Testament, God was the invisible God. But you know what? God then decided, he's he's, he's the invisible God that people can't see, but he decided, I'm going to make myself visible. I'm going to take myself and I'm going to make myself visible so that mankind can see me. And the way that God did that is he became one of us. He masked himself in humanity. He became a man so that we could see him and not die, so that he, the invisible God, would be visible to us in the form of a man. And this is what Jesus Christ did. And this is why Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, the Greek word that is translated image here is very interesting. And Paul could have used, you know, a few different words that in our English language, we would have probably translated image, but each one has some different meanings. So if Paul was wanting to say, you know what, Jesus is similar to God, he would have used the Greek word homoiama, which means similar in appearance. You know, this would be the word that you would use to describe, you know, a father and a son. You know, many people tell me I have a similar appearance to my dad. And so they would have used this Greek word to say, you guys don't look exactly alike, but you have a similar appearance. But that's not the Greek word that Paul uses here. He uses the Greek word ekon, uh, which expresses two things, likeness and manifestation. Now, when this word is speaking of likeness, it's speaking of like looking into a mirror, the exact likeness of someone. So you look in the mirror and what do you see? You see the exact likeness 
of yourself. And so if I'm standing next to my dad, you would say we have a similar appearance. But if I'm looking in the mirror, it's the exact appearance of what you see. And so this is the word that Paul is using, this exact appearance, not some similar appearance. But also we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus is the image of, of God. He's the exact appearance of God. Why? Because he is God. You know, if you took a digital picture of me, that would be my image. You would have the exact image of me. And if we were able to have a digital picture of Jesus, you would have the image of God because he is God. So this first Greek, this Greek word, the first thing it describes is likeness, but it also describes manifestation. And when it speaks of manifestation, it means to declare what something is like. So you could have a picture of me, you know, and you could, you know, have that in your house and that would be an exact image of what I look like. But if that's all you had and you never met me, you wouldn't have a clue about me. You know, you wouldn't know what I'm like. You would just know what I look like, but you wouldn't know what I am like. You'd have to spend time with me in order to have that declared, in order for that to be manifest to you. You would just kind of have that visual idea, but you wouldn't have, you know, the experiential knowledge of what I'm like. And in the same way, if all we had was a digital picture of Jesus, yeah, we'd know what he physically looked like, but we wouldn't really have him manifest to us. We wouldn't have him declared and know what he was like. And so this word is not just speaking of the fact that you you can see Jesus, the image of Jesus is exactly the same as God because he is God, but also Jesus declared what God's like. As he's here in this world, he declared who God is and what God is like. In John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, we're told, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father He has declared him. So God, who is the invisible God throughout all the Old Testament, decides, I am going to now be visible. I am going to declare myself through sending my son to be a man so that mankind can now see me and see what I'm like and have me declared among them. You know, a lot of people want to see God. They want to know what God's like. And they really even pray that. I find it interesting, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, he actually asked Jesus that question. And I want you to know what Jesus says in response to Philip's question of, you know, show me God the Father. John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11 says this. Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Philip poses a question that many people pray, that many people think today, hey, hey, show us God the Father and that will be sufficient. I just want to see him. You know, if I get to see him and then I'll be content and happy and I'll know what he's like and it'll be great. And so Philip poses this question to Jesus and notice Jesus' response to Philip's question of, hey, Jesus, I just want you to show me God. Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? What Jesus is saying to Philip is, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. Why? Because I am God. We're one. 
And so whatever you see in me, I am a direct declaration of who God is. I am here in flesh to declare to you God because I am God. And so, Philip, you're asking to see the Father, and you've been living with God for years. You've seen him. Everything that I am, all that I do is a manifestation of who God is. F.F. Bruce wrote this about Jesus being the image of God. To call Christ the image of God is to say that in him, the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested. That in his invisible, that in him, the invisible has become visible. Since God is the invisible God, he decided to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ and make himself visible to mankind. So when you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. You want to know how God will respond? Look to Jesus. Jesus is a perfect declaration of God. He's the image of the invisible God. So through this statement, Paul wants to make very clear, Jesus is God. And so those who are attacking Jesus' deity, they're lying. Now, as I mentioned earlier, people will answer the question who Jesus is in many different ways. But besides Christians, none of them are going to say that Jesus is God. But the thing that I find very interesting with majority of people in their response to the question who Jesus is, almost all of them will respond in a way that has Jesus being good. He's a good man. That's a very common thing that you'll hear. He's a good teacher. Very common thing you have. Even in Islam, he's a great, good prophet. You know, that the, the, they view him that way. You know, the different cults, different people, they all say Jesus was good. Rarely are you going to have Jesus was some wicked, horrible person. Almost the, the common uh, mindset of people is that Jesus is good, but not God. And when you come across a person like that and you pose that question to them, well, well, who do you think Jesus is? Most likely you're going to hear something that says he's good, but not God. And when that happens, I want to challenge you to just share something with them that will hopefully make them think. And the challenge here is titled, Liar, Lunatic, Lord. You see, Jesus on many occasions said that he was God. The main reason the religious leaders killed him was because he said and claimed that he was God and they did not believe that he was. Now, when you're talking with someone who claims that Jesus is good, but that he is not God, you need to help them to see, well, wait a second. The only way that Jesus could be good is if he was God. You see, Jesus claimed to be God. So if he's not God, the first option is he's a liar. He claimed to be something that he was not. And not only is he a liar, his lie has influenced millions of people who are all believing this lie. So you can't say Jesus is good when he would go down in history as one of the biggest liars ever to live because of how many people have bought into his declaration that he is God. So if someone wants to say he's good but not God, well, wait a second, he's a liar, liars aren't good. Well, 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 maybe Jesus wasn't purposely lying. Maybe he actually believed he was God, but he wasn't. Well, what we call that is a lunatic. He believed he was God, but he was deranged. He was this deranged lunatic who thought, oh, I am God, bow down and worship me. But he wasn't. He was just some guy who was a complete lunatic. Well, in our society, we put them in a straitjacket, we put them in a sane asylum, and we don't label them as good. We say, steer clear of these guys. You don't want to be around them. He thinks he's God, and you should worship him. He's got some mental issues. And so either Jesus is a bold-faced liar, or he's a lunatic, but either way, he's not good. The only way that Jesus can be good is if he truly is God. And that's why we have liar, we have lunatic, and then we have the third category, Lord. Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, God, then he should be Lord of everything. He should be Lord of our life. The only way he can be good is if he is what he said he was, God. And I found this to be a very effective tool just to get people to think because they kind of just throw that out there. Oh, yeah, Jesus is a good person. Really? Well, let's, let's just kind of break that down for a moment and think about that. Why would you call him good? Do you realize what he said about himself? You know, would you say that if, if that's wrong, that still makes him good? Wouldn't he be a liar? Wouldn't he be a lunatic? And help them to think that you can't just throw that out. 
Either he's a, you know, a complete evil lying man, a deranged man, or he is who he claimed to be God. And definitely Paul is wanting us to realize the truth is the third option. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God. So the first thing that Paul wants us to understand about Jesus is he's God. He's the one who reveals to us what God is like. The second thing we see about Jesus is in verses 15 through 17. The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The first thing in this list that Paul says about Jesus is that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this word translated firstborn here is one that we really need to make sure we understand what it means, not only to understand what Jesus is saying, but even more particularly what Jesus is not saying right here. And so when you hear that word firstborn, usually the first thing that we think of is first chronologically. My daughter Scarlett is my firstborn. She was born chronologically before my second daughter Eden. So that's kind of the way in which we often think of this word firstborn. It's kind of the chronological you know, reality of something. And that word is used that way in the Bible. But that's not the only way that it's used in the Bible. It's also used to describe the first in priority or first in rank. So it's not just a chronological thing. It's also something that speaks of priority, the first priority, the first in rank in an area. And we see several examples of this throughout Scripture. Um, one of those, for those of you who've been coming on Thursday night, we just saw this, where Ephraim, um, Joseph's son, is the second born. Manasseh is the firstborn. But God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, wait a second, God, don't you have it mixed up here? Manasseh's a firstborn. Well, God's not talking about firstborn chronologically. He's talking, he is my firstborn priority. He's my firstborn in rank. And so I have chosen him above his brother, who, yes, chronologically was born before him, but I have placed him in the first priority, in the first rank. And so it's being used in the second way that this word can often be used as. God also says that the nation of Israel was his firstborn. Well, you know, the nation of Israel didn't get established in the Garden of Eden. There was plenty of nations that came and went before the nation of Israel. So how could God say the nation of Israel's first chronologically? He's not. He knows that they aren't first chronologically, but he is saying that they are first in priority and rank to him. And so he's using this word to describe that. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn from the dead. You think, well, wait a second, Jesus, I know at least one guy, Lazarus, that rose from the dead before you, so how could you be the first one to rise from the dead? Well, Jesus wasn't the first one to rise from the dead, and that's not what this is speaking about. It's speaking about Jesus being the first in priority and in rank, and I could go on and on how this word is used in that way. And so as we come here to Colossians, this is the same way in which this word is used. It's not saying Jesus is firstborn in the sense of chronologically, is speaking of Jesus being firstborn in priority and rank. So he is firstborn over all creation. That does not mean he's the first one to be created. You know, Jesus, God created Jesus first chronologically, and then everything else came after him. That's not what this word is saying. It's speaking of Jesus being the first in priority and rank over all creation. And the reason this is very important to make this distinction and to understand that this Greek word is used in these two different ways is if you ever have a Jehovah Witness come to your door, this is one of the verses that they're going to come to. And this is one of the things that they're going to try to convince you of, that Jesus is the firstborn. And just like this says, oh, so that means he is the first created one, which means He's not eternal, which means he's not God. And so they try to use this to say, well, see, firstborn, that's what it means. But now you realize, well, actually, that's sometimes the way in which firstborn is translated, but it also can speak of first in priority and first in rank. And that is what Paul is speaking of here. 
But now when you go on to verses 16 and 17, it makes it real clear that Paul is not speaking about Jesus was the first created thing because notice what he says next in verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. So we know that Paul's not referring to Jesus as the first created thing when he turns around and says, well, actually, everything was created by Jesus. He created everything in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, you name it. He created it. By Jesus, all things were created. So if you go back to Genesis 1-1 and you read the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Guess what? Paul is saying that was Jesus who did that. Jesus created all things. This is what John says in his gospel as well, at the very beginning of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now this uh, word, literally translated word, the word, is speaking of Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. And so Paul's making very clear. Everything was made by Jesus. Everything was made through Jesus. But then he shares another important thing about Jesus in connection to creation. In verse, at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is not only the creator of everything, he is the reason why everything was created. It was created for him. And this is one of the areas that people have a real big issue with. We love to think that everything was created for me, for my pleasure, for my desires, for what I want to do. And when you come to the realization that, wait a second, I wasn't created for myself. I wasn't created to live for myself. I wasn't created to please myself. I wasn't created to do whatever I want to do with my life. I was created for Jesus. Some people have some big issue with that. People who are prideful, people who are selfish, people who just want it all to be about them, they don't like the reality that they weren't created for themselves to live the way they want. You and I were not created for ourselves. We were created for Jesus, for his pleasure, for his purposes, and we're to live out his will, not our own. You know, one of the reasons that people love and embrace evolution and when you sit down with someone and, you know, I rarely find it, you know, that someone's just totally on board with it if they've actually studied it from a scientific side of things because there's so many problems, you know, from the evidence of it. So it's really not that that I find when I talk with a lot of people. One of the reasons they love evolution is because it denies that there is a creator. It denies that there is a God. And now I am left with being able to live however I want. So it's, it's created for me. I, it's all just kind of this random accident that comes to me, and I can just do what I want with my life. I can live the way I want in my life. I'm not answerable to anyone. And people love that. They want that. They want that to be you know, the, the mantra of their life. I can do whatever it is I want to do, and nobody is going to tell me anything different. You know, many people today, ultimately, they might not describe it with this way, but this is how they feel. They want to be their own God. They want to be the one who is in charge of their life, making all the decisions. They don't want a God over them. They don't want someone telling them what to do. They want to be the God that they can just do whatever it is that they want. But you know what? It doesn't work. So many people have tried to be their own God. And many people have got to a place where they're even worshipped as gods. I mean, you've got so many people in the music industry that are worshipped when they go and perform. You've got people who are actors who are worshipped when they go out. You've got people who are in that positions where many people just love and adore them. And they're their own god. And yet they are empty and they are miserable and they have attained things that other people just wish they could attain. And yet... And the more and more money they make, the more and more fame they get, the more and more power they receive, 
the more empty they become. And the reason why is because they're living for something that they were never created to live for. That they've replaced God, the one that they should be living for, with themselves, and they're living for themselves, and they're wondering, why is it that life is not fulfilling? Why is it that things are empty? Why is it that none of this is really making me feel the way that I thought I would? You know, I could take my car and drive it off the side of the mountain because I want my car to fly, but that's not what my car was designed to do. So instead of flying, I am just going to fall. And the end result is I'm going to crash and die. Why? Because my car wasn't designed to fly. You know, but so many people in the same regard think, you know what, I'm I'm not designed for this, but I'm going to do this anyway. And they're shocked by the fact that the end result is just crashing and burning. You and I were created for Jesus. So when we seek to live for something other than Jesus, we will never be fulfilled. It will never be something that fills the void in our life because we were created for something so much more. We were created for something so much better. You know, I've counseled many people who have told me their life is unfulfilled, their marriage is unfulfilled, their job is unfulfilling. And as I talk with them, the same thing happens in each situation. You get to the core of it and you find The reason your marriage is not fulfilling you is because you're not living for Jesus in your marriage. You're not following what Jesus says. The reason your job is not fulfilling is because you're not living for Jesus in your job. The reason your life isn't fulfilling is because you're not living for Jesus in your life. And you think that I can find fulfillment in other things other than Jesus. And you're discovering the truth that the Bible says there is no fulfillment outside of Jesus. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. So you might think, hey, I've just started doing this and I'm finding lots of fulfillment. No, you're finding pleasure for a season and the consequences are going to come and you're going to realize, no, this isn't really fulfilling. This is something that doesn't give me what I want. And you're just going to discover that I'm still empty. I still don't have what I want. And it's only in following Jesus, giving your life completely to him, that you will find true fulfillment. Here's something I want you to take note of this morning. If you want a fulfilled life, then live for Jesus because you were created for Jesus. Your life will never be fulfilled when you're living opposite of why you were created and who you were created for. But you know what? Your life can be so full of fulfillment when you live for Jesus. And the amazing thing is, you you can especially, I, I love going on mission trips and I love meeting Christians in third world countries. And you think, how can your life be fulfilling when you live in dirt and you have no electricity and you have no plumbing and you have just little huts? You know, how can you have fulfillment? Why? Because all that stuff is not what fulfills you. The money, the electricity, the, the comforts of the Western world. We think, oh, if we just have more and more of this stuff, then I'll be fulfilled. No, it doesn't fulfill. They're fulfilled because they're living for Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what kind of state of life you have. If you're living for Jesus, you can still have complete fulfillment. And on the other side of the coin, you could have everything this world has to offer and be completely unfulfilled when you're not living for Jesus. So when it comes to creation, Paul has revealed to us that Jesus is the creator of everything. It was created by him. It was created through him, but also was created for him. But he wants to tell us one more thing about Jesus in connection to creation that is important for us to understand as well in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now this word consist is a bad translation of the Greek. Many of your translations, if you're reading in your Bible right now, will say hold together. And that's a much better translation because that's what this Greek word means. It means to hold together. So Jesus not only created everything, Paul says, hey, it's not only the one that created, it not only created it for him, but he's also the one that holds all of creation together. He is the creator and the sustainer of all that he created. And if he were to let go, everything would fall apart. John Corson said this about Jesus holding everything together. There is an interesting law of science called uh, Colombo's Law of Electricity, which very simply says, like charges repel. If you have a magnet in your right hand and a magnet in your left hand, and you push the opposite ends towards each other, they push away. Opposite charges attract, 
like charges repel. But there is a great mystery. In the nucleus of the atom, protons are packed together, which are all positive charged particles. What keeps these positive charged protons from repelling like magnets? What holds them together? Science doesn't know. You can study quantum physics and learn lots of hypotheses and theories, yet to this day, it's a mystery to scientists, but to the belie- not to the believer, for the scriptures tell us the real answer. It is Jesus Christ who holds all things together. Now, there's something important here. You might look at, okay, yeah, Jesus holds all of creation together. What does that have to do with me? Well, let's think about that. If Jesus can hold everything in all of creation together, don't you think that he has the power to hold your life together? So often we're in positions where we think, man, my life is falling apart spiritually. My life is falling apart emotionally. My life is falling apart physically. And oh, who do I run to? What do I do? Oh, how do I stop this? If the one who holds creation together can do that, surely he has the power to hold your life together as well. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this about Jesus. You know what? When you're falling apart, when your life is all messed up, Jesus says, just come to me. All you who are labor and heavy laden, you got all these issues and problems in your life, just come and give them to me. And I'll give you my burdens, they're light. I'll give you my yoke, your light. Give me your heavy burdens and I'll just replace them with mine, which are nothing. And you can walk away blessed. You can walk away restful. You can walk away held together because that is what Jesus does. John MacArthur said this, How encouraging to know that the eternal God who sustains the entire universe is watching, also watching over you. No detail of your life is too small for his concern. No circumstance is too big for his sovereign control. You know, when I was a kid, I used to sing a song. And if you grew up in the church, you probably sang it as well. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know, you sing that song. He's got the whole world in his hands. You do all little hand motions. But then it gets more specific. You know, you got the moms and the dads in his hands. And it finally gets to the most specific of all. He's got you and me in his hands. And it's a great song for kids to finally start to get the idea that God has me in his hands. I might be falling apart. I might be going through problems. My parents might be getting divorced. I might have this issue or that issue. But you know what? God's got me in his hands. He can keep me from falling apart. He can help me through these difficulties and these struggles. And this is the wonderful thing that Paul wants us to realize that Jesus has in connection with creation. So first, Jesus, the creator of everything, it was created by him, it was created through him, it was also created for him, and it is held together by him. So Paul starts by revealing that Jesus is God. He's the one who reveals to us what God is like. Second, he reveals to us that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything, and that all creation should live for him. And now Paul's going to reveal the final thing that we're going to look at this morning about Jesus in verse 18. It says this, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. This Greek word translated head is a very interesting word because it can refer to three different things. It can refer to a literal head, like this head that you see here on a body. Uh, It can refer to uh, someone who is the master or ruler, so like the head of a kingdom. And it can also refer to the source of something, like the head of a river. And the great thing about this word is I think that Paul probably had all three things in mind when he speaks of Jesus being the head of the church. The first thing you see is that Jesus connects really the the physical, literal human head with this analogy when he says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. 
It's interesting that when you look through the Bible, the church is often described as the human body. It's kind of this picture for us because as the human body has many different functions and members, so the church has many different people in it that have different functions, but we're all part of one body. And guess what? In that illustration, Jesus would be the head of that body. And the head of our body, what does it do? It's the one that has the brain. It guides, it directs. Well, in the same thing with the church, the body of Christ, the head, Jesus Christ, should be the one who is guiding, the one who is directing us where you and I should go. But Jesus is also the head of the church in the sense that he is the master and the ruler of the church. And the master and ruler of anything should be the one who has the authority to tell others what they should be doing, and that is what Jesus is with the body of Christ. He is the head in the sense that he is our master, he is our ruler, he is the one who has complete authority over us. You know, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? You know, the word Lord means master. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians use this in their prayer, Lord, 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 they repeat it a lot, and they don't even realize the word actually means master. And what Jesus is saying to this person is, why are you saying to me, master, master, but you don't do what I tell you? If I'm truly your master, then obey me, or quit calling me master, because I'm obviously not. And I think with many Christians, they'll use that term, Lord, 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 and then they go do exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants. So stop calling him your master. He's not your master. You've got to make him your master. That's what he wants to be. That's what he should be. But oftentimes we're claiming that, but through our lifestyle, we're showing that's not the truth at all. And so we need to recognize Jesus is the head in the sense that he is the master. He is the ruler, and we should live like it. But Jesus is also the head of the church in the sense that he is the source of all that we need as the church. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Jesus is the source of all we need. Specifically here, he's speaking of the source for bearing spiritual fruit. And as Christians, I hope that's our desire. Yeah, I want to be fruitful in the sense of I want to bear fruit that God is pleased with. Spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I want that to come out of my life. Well, in this analogy, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the source. I'm the vine that has the source of all that is needed for the branch to bear fruit. We're the branch. Jesus is the vine. He's saying, if you abide in me, you stay connected to me, you'll bear fruit. Because I'm the source of what you need. But guess what? You break that branch off the vine, it just withers and dies, and there's no fruit that comes from it. And in the same way, we disconnect ourselves from Jesus, the source. We're not bearing any fruit. We need to realize as we look at him as the head of the church, he's also the source of all that we need. And that's why we need to spend so much time with him. William Barclay said this about Jesus being the head of the church. He is the head of the body, that is, of the church. The church is the body of Christ, that is, the organism through which he acts and which shares all his experiences. But humanly speaking, the body is the servant of the head and is powerless without it. So Jesus Christ is the guiding spirit of the church. It is at his bidding that the church must live and move Without him, the church cannot think the truth, cannot act correctly, cannot decide its direction. You know, if you remove Jesus as the head of the church, the church is going to fall apart. And sadly, that is what many people today within the church are trying to do. Let's replace Jesus as the head with me. I want to be the head. I want to be the one in authority. And let's remove Jesus's headship. Let's remove Jesus as the authority, as the source, as the one who's the master. And you know what? I will replace him or you will replace him or you will replace him. And there's so many who are seeking to do that. And when that happens, the church falls apart. It does not function any longer the way that God has designed it. And when that happens, you're not going to be guided and directed by Jesus. You're going to be guided and directed by the person who's replaced him. And that's a scary thought when you think of it. 
You're not going to have the source of what Jesus offers for spiritual life. You're just going to have what that person has to offer who's replaced him, which is nothing. If you're ever in a church where Jesus is removed from being the head and the authority, go find another church where he is, because that's a horrible place to be. Paul goes on to say, who is the beginning? Just like Jesus was the beginning in the sense of he created everything, he's always existed, but he's also the beginning of the church. He's the source, but he's also the establisher. He's the one who has started it all. It's all about him. It's all about what he's done. It's all founded on his sacrifice for us and his resurrection from the dead. But he is the one who has started the church. So not only did Jesus create everything back in the time of creation, he also created the church. And Paul says he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, we already noted earlier this word firstborn doesn't just mean firstborn chronologically. It can also mean firstborn in priority and in rank. And once again, this is how Paul is using it here. And really, Paul expounds upon this idea a little more in 1 Corinthians 15. And notice what he says. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. And so what Paul is bringing up here about Jesus being the the firstborn from the dead or the firstfruits is the reality that he is the first one to ever be risen to never die again. You know, Lazarus is the one that's most well-known of, oh, yeah, Jesus rose him from the dead. But, you know, I don't even think that was a pleasurable experience for Lazarus because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And guess what? Boom, Lazarus is brought back. But Lazarus was risen to what? Die again. He didn't get risen and then live forever. He died again, however long his life lasted. Jesus is the only one who was risen to never die again. He's the first one to do that. But the point of what Paul is saying here in Corinthians is he is the hope for us that we too, when we die, have the hope of being resurrected to a new glorified body and spend eternity in heaven with God. And so not only is Jesus the creator of the church, he's also the hope that the church has of eternity with the Lord. And so he's the head, he's the creator, and he is the hope of the church. And that's why Jesus should always be the focus. I mean, we're at church and Jesus is not the focus. We got a problem because he's the foundation of everything. He's the start of everything. He's the head of everything. He's the hope of everything. And so when we lose focus on Jesus, we've kind of lost focus on what is most important in the church. He's the one that we should look to for direction. He's the one that should be our master that we put ourselves under the authority of. He's the one that we should look to for the source for spiritual fruit. And he's the one that we should look to for the hope of heaven. So Paul has revealed three very important things here about Jesus. And the Bible has many more things to say. This is not some exhaustive list, but as I mentioned at the beginning, he's targeting these three things because those three things were being attacked. First, Jesus is God and the one that reveals to us what God is like. Second, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything and the one that all creation should live for. And third, Jesus is the head of the church, the creator of the church, and the hope for the church and the one the church should follow. And now Paul ends with the final statement in verse 18 that kind of sums up how should we respond to these three truths of who Jesus is. You know, what should we do with that? Okay, great. You know, he's my creator. You know, he, he's, he's the head of my, you know, self being the church. But you know, what do I do with that? Notice what he says in verse, the end of verse 18, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The Greek word here translated preeminence means to be first, to hold the first and chief place. So our response to the fact that Jesus is God, our response to the fact that he is the creator and sustainer of everything, our response to the fact that he is the head of the church, that he's the creator and the hope of the church, Paul says we should give him preeminence in everything. He should be first in your life. 
He should be the priority of your life. Because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of the relationship that we have, because of all that he's blessed us with, our response should be, make him first. And that's the real challenge for us as believers. That's the struggle. Just like people, they they don't like the reality that we were created for Jesus. Why? Because they want to live for themselves. We don't often like to make Jesus first because we have someone else who's already first, us. And so we have to remove ourselves from being first and saying, Jesus, you were first. It's your will, not mine. It's your direction, not mine. I'm going to live for you, not myself. Why? Because I have placed you first. You are on the throne, not me. You are God, not me. You're the one and the only one who deserves that role in my life of priority. And, you know, we as Christians will often say, yeah, Jesus is number one priority of my life. But then all you got to do is examine your life and you can realize how sometimes that's not a very truthful statement. Oh, yeah, you're the number one priority in my life, but yet I haven't spent any time with you this week. Yeah, that's a great number one priority. If your number one priority is anything, you're going to regularly do it. You're going to regularly spend time with it. If your spouse is your priority, you're going to be with them. If yourself is your priority, you're going to constantly be doing things for yourself. If Jesus is the priority, you will give him time. If he's the priority, you will study his word. If he's the priority, you will spend time in prayer. If he's the priority, you'll be living your life for him. If he's the priority, your focus will be his will, not your own. And so you can real easily discover right now as you look at your life, is he really the priority or not? And if he's not, don't be content with that. Don't leave here saying, well, you know, you're number three or maybe you're number two. But no, he needs to be number one. He needs to be the priority in our life. He needs to first be priority of importance. Matthew 10 verse 37 says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oftentimes, we will place those in our lives that we love, and there's nothing wrong with loving father. There's nothing wrong with loving mother or children. We should love them. What Jesus isn't saying is don't love them. He's saying don't love them more than me. Don't put them at a higher place than I am. I need to be the priority of your life. And people, man, Jesus is so egotistical. Jesus wants all this stuff. Oh, I can't believe he would ask me to put him in that place. Jesus knows something very important. You want to be the best father? You want to be the best mother? You want to be the best husband or wife? Guess what? Your relationship with Jesus has to come first. Why? Because every relationship besides our relationship with Jesus is influenced by our relationship with Jesus. So if you're spending regular time with Jesus, you're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better wife. You're going to be a better mom and dad. And if you're not spending time with Jesus, you're going to be worse in those areas because our time with him and our relationship with him blesses or hinders other relationships. And so making him priority doesn't mean say, well, sorry, wife, you're not good enough. No, I'm now going to be a much better husband. You can ask Jenny. She would much rather have Jesus be my priority than her because I will do a much better job as a husband if Jesus is my priority. I'll do a much better job as a father if Jesus is my priority. And so he's helping us see you got to make me first in importance. But you know, he needs to be first in priority, as we've said. Matthew 22, 37 through 38 Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. If we could just do this, this is the first, this is the most important, the one that oftentimes we neglect. Hey, love God with all that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let that be the pursuit of your life and watch how that influences you. Jesus also needs to be first in our pursuits. Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first what? My kingdom? My desires? What I want? No. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added to you. Put Jesus first in your pursuits.